Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, you've probably heard about the recent federal report estimating that sea levels will rise up to a foot by 2050, creating dangerous coastal flooding. Add to that alarming report the double whammy prediction of supercharged snowstorms and hurricanes affecting the Northeast. Too much doom and gloom? Well, there's a cohort of young activists using social media to inspire climate action. Plus, green transportation gets a boost in Massachusetts with three free bus lanes in Boston and millions of dollars funding EV charging stations around the state. Those stories and more on our Environmental Roundtable. Later in the show, what's been around since prehistoric times but is vital to modern medicine, including the COVID-19 vaccine? The horseshoe crab. When you want a test, Anything that's going to come in in contact with the human blood system, whether it's a a syringe or a vaccine or a pacemaker, all has to be tested to make sure they're free of of gram-negative bacteria. And the way they do that is is with with the horseshoe crab blood. Bill Sargent, author of Crab Wars, tells us why one humble ocean bottom feeder deserves humanity's gratitude. But first, joining me remotely, Dr. Aaron Bernstein, Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He's a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Hello, Dr. Bernstein. Hi, Callie. Great to be here. Beth Daly, Editor and General Manager at The Conversation U.S. Welcome back, Beth. Thanks for having me. And Sam Payne, Strategic Communications Manager at the Better Future Project. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Thanks for having me, Callie. Well, I want to jump right into this climate change predictions about the disasters, the supercharged northeast snowstorms and the catastrophic hurricanes predicted for the northeastern U.S. And that, of course, as I've said, is in the context of this report about sea level rise and its impact, which will contribute to dangerous flooding, certainly here as well. Why are we getting it so bad, Dr. Bernstein? (laughs) Well, that's a good question, Kelly. The the reports underscore what we've known for a long time, which is oceans are getting warmer. That's hurricane food. And particularly warming is happening faster the further north you go in, in, in the world's oceans. So what the research piece out of MIT found was that using the physics of ocean warming and hurricane strength and using that scientific information to project forward, we're likely to get more intense hurricanes. Just, you know, what what makes it hard for us is, you know, we don't we don't get strong hurricanes here often. And and I think that's that's the part that's most challenging uh, for preparedness. Beth. Yeah, I mean, it's we are going to get it bad, as you say, and it it, it um, it it's not pretty. Um, you know, we don't get these kind of storms regularly. We're in a more northern locale, so we are getting warming temperatures quicker. And the other thing is, it should also be noted in terms of flooding, um, is that the ocean isn't you know it, it isn't a bathtub. 
different levels of the sea, you know, rise in different lo- geographical locations. And in New England, the seas are rising faster than other places in the world as well for a bunch of reasons. So you have all these three, four, and sometimes other kind of variables coming at us here in New England, and it all makes up for, you know, a lot more disasters um, in our future, ones we're not really prepared for and experienced any time recently. And Sam, it, it doesn't seem that, I mean, this is really disastrous news, but it doesn't seem like people are like flipping out, except the scientists. Yeah, and they really should be. This is a stark reminder that climate change is not something that will happen in the future. It is something that is happening right here, right now, and is wreaking devastation upon our communities. And I think it's really important to remember that it will cost less lives and less dollars to take action right now to prevent things getting worse than to just clean up the mess every time we have another disaster strike. And when we have another disaster strike, Beth, um, uh, as we've seen, it turns out that there is a real impact long lasting on kids who experience post-traumatic stress. So the ones who lived through Katrina, for example, the ones who uh, may have lived through some of these very harsh flooding situations in the Midwest. But now we are talking about also scenarios here in in our arena. Talk about what has been discovered there and maybe what can be done about it. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really interesting. There's a growing body of research coming out that says, you know, these disasters that particularly kids are living through really have a long-lasting effect on them from PTSD. And what to do about it is not entirely clear. Researchers know what's going on. They know it's a serious problem. They know that kids uh, either can shy away from, you know, trying to understand or kind of ignore is, is one response. Um, but what they're really trying to teach, I think adults to talk to children about that, you know, this is, even though this will become more regular occurrences, it doesn't mean this idea that the world's going to end tomorrow, that all is lost and to continue on with your days and your lives as somewhat normal, that that may not be the most, um, (laughs) you know, uplifting way to treat a child's high anxiety, but it is one way they're thinking to talk to children often about it. I would also argue that I think, and Dr. Bernstein, you're the pediatrician in this group, that when you offer people, whatever their age, some ability to feel as though, not that they can control, but they can contribute uh, to the betterment of their environment, then that kind of can reduce, help to reduce rather, uh, some of that stress. And I am uh, taken with these young climate creators that uh, have been identified by your group, Dr. Bernstein, and by others who are determined that they are going to get our attention about what we need to be doing. This is Peak Action and the Center for Climate Health and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, highlighting 16 climate creators to watch this year. And here's three of them, Genesis Butler, Christy Drutman, and Doria Brown. Hi, heroes. I'm Genesis Butler, and today we're going to talk about wildfires. I'm bringing with me my friends who actually helped rescue animals from this fire. Okay, let's do this. Today I want to teach you all about something called agrovoltaics, which is a fancy term to describe the use of farmland for both solar panels 
and agriculture. Let's get into it. So why do we continue to push this narrative that Gen Z are the only group of people that can save the planet? Now that's climate denial. Now, this is important to recognize these new leaders in this arena, uh, Dr. Bernstein, because they're the ones now shaping the policy pretty soon. Yeah, we're we're so thrilled about our our work with the climate creators, Kelly. And I appreciate you you mentioning them. These these are a group of young people, uh, people of color, uh, living in communities around the United States who have mostly through. <laughs> Uh, willpower. Um, these are all folks. This is not their full-time job. They have, they often are working multiple jobs. Have have sought to try and talk about climate as an issue that is actionable, uh, that is urgent and personal, so that we can get at the climate despair that we were talking about. Because there's nothing worse than seeing bad news and not having an avenue to to address it. So what these creators have done is gotten audiences of hundreds of thousands of people each in many cases to, to listen to climate stories in a way that is empowering, that says, yeah, this is bad, but here's what we can do about it. Or here are people who are trying to find cool ways to address it. And, and from where we sit at Harvard, this is a, a, a really important, um, you know, there are a few things I think we can do that are more important than elevating their work. And we are able to partner with them and, and hopefully help provide them with the best available science that they are far better and far more able to, to put out into the real world through the channels that you know people are using primarily to get news. And we have really good, robust scientific evidence that one of the best ways to deal with, with misinformation, disinformation is, is to inoculate people with good information. So we're really excited about it, and, and we hope it, it, it is another experiment that, that can lead us in a pathway towards, you know, a robust, scientifically informed action plan around climate. I think it also helps maybe underscore it because people think maybe there's Greta Thunberg and, you know, a couple other people and that's it. But this speaks to a broader interest, a deeper interest, a serious concern, as those of us on this conversation know, has have it's been there for a long time, but I don't think that's clear for other people that there are lots of young people who are not only frightened, but are trying to take some agency about where to move in order to try to correct some of this. Sam, what do you say? You know, uh, I'm really, first of all, inspired by these young people stepping up and uh, really saying what has to be done. Uh, I grew up in the early 2000s and it was beaded into my head by every adult how much responsibility my generation and future generations would have. And, you know, it's really not fair that uh, young generations have been saddled with what will probably be the worst of climate change. And I think we really owe it to them not only to listen, but to implement so many of the changes that we know would make a big difference because that will help make the empowerment real. And I think that will also help with the anxiety a lot of people are feeling when we're seeing all of these stories about how new models show that climate change is going to be even worse than previously anticipated. That can be a big downer. But the messages we've been seeing from these young people are generally pretty positive. And I think we owe it to them to deliver on that. Beth. Yeah, I just I just love this. You know, I spent, you know, so much time looking at these amazing climate creators to watch and and they're just so, they are they're so inspiring you know as as an antidote to the you know post traumatic stress disorder that so many kids may be feeling you know even you know thousands of away watching disasters 
you know, these kids, these people are, are, you know, taking a positive step to make the world a better place. And it, I don't know, it made me feel really good. I hope everyone um, checks it out. It's climatecreatorstowatch.com and um, read about these amazing people. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Dr. Aaron Bernstein of Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Beth Daly of The Conversation U.S., and Sam Payne of The Better Future Project. We're discussing the latest environmental stories you need to know. Dr. Bernstein, it is really, really, really depressing that people don't grasp the pandemic prevention actions that need to be taken that will cost way less than waiting till it happens again and then trying to respond after the fact. And there are several issues involved with this, of course, but but basically we're just sort of saying, ah, oh, we made it through this one. Eh, well, you know, we'll just, we'll see what happens. And that is really depressing, I have to say. Yeah, well, the good news is that we're making progress to change that, Kelly. And I'm I'm heartened by the response that we've gotten to a paper we recently published, which which says we don't have to take this route of essentially waiting for disaster and then cleaning up the, the mess, as, as as Sam put it earlier. We really do have the means and the scientific backing to to, to prevent pandemics before they start. And and this paper we published in Science Advances says that the actions we would need to take, which really focus on protecting nature addressing risks that come uh, from uh, animal trade and trafficking and, and from you know, large-scale livestock operations, that addressing those things uh, at scale is about 1 20th the cost of the value, or say 1 20th the value of the lives lost every year uh, to emerging infections, things that are new, uh, that spill from animals into people. And we looked at every single emerging infection from animals going back to the Spanish flu. Wow. Uh, and, and, and so you could say, well, let's just look at this one pandemic, which has obviously been enormously damaging, but we thought it was probably more robust to look at the cost every year. And we've had, you know, HIV, which is, you know, costing us billions and billions of dollars every year. And so we really, at the end of the day, realize that our salvation comes cheap. And oh, by the way, many of these things that we call primary prevention, these actions that prevent the spillover, have huge additional benefits, which you could never get if you're just relying on vaccines, tests, and drugs. Things like forest conservation, which prevents climate change. Uh, there's a lot of pathogen movement from wild animals into livestock and from livestock into wild animals. In both cases, it's a risk for either food supplies or um, the survival of species, and, and I could go on and on. But the bottom line is, these prevention strategies are the only thing that really makes sense in a world in which the climate is unstable and the living world is under threat. We're always going to need vaccines. I'm a pediatrician. I am the first person to say we need to get as many people vaccinated. But here's the kicker vaccines as a, as a strategy for, for pandemic risk are fundamentally inequitable. They will always benefit rich people in rich countries first and people in low wealth communities and low wealth countries last. And all of the profits stand to go again to the richest companies in the richest countries. And so we also contrast in this paper that approach versus stopping emerging infections in low and middle income countries where they tend to erupt and protecting those lives and economies first to protect everyone. And so there's also a huge equity component to this idea of 
primary prevention. And the good news is, is I think we're starting to make inroads into governments and foundations and others to help them realize that we do have another pathway. We do have another a way to go when it comes to addressing uh, pandemic risk. So the three things that your paper recommends, which I think anybody listening to this would say, yeah, we, we should do this, is global surveillance of viruses and wildlife, better control of hunting and trade in wildlife, and then, as you said, stopping the deforestation. You know, these are things that are kind of haphazard now that we're doing in spurts, I would say, Beth, in some places, um, have been recognized as things that could definitely make a difference, but put together the impact is huge, according to this paper. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like I really like this paper, in part because it, it really makes the case stronger than any other thing, is that if you focus on these three areas, you know, yes, globally, you know, deforestation, the wildlife trade, and, and this sort of burgeoning agriculture um, area, that you can really make enormous inroads and saves, you know, millions of lives. And, and that that struck me as uh, very powerful. Now, it's not going to be easy, right? It, and it's, it's not going to happen overnight. But if we don't do this, we can expect something like 3.3 million deaths from zoonotic diseases each year in the future. So the, I, and that's not even, you know, something as bad as COVID. Mm -hmm. So if we could start to try to separate the animals from the people and really try to stop this deforestation, that's just, you know, encroaching and putting people in animals in closer and closer contact, it's going to work. I mean, it's going to cost a lot of money to do that. And in these cases, you know, where do you find the money? Sometimes like response money is easy to get at, at, at preventive money. And so I'm really grateful that some foundations are beginning to look at this and say, hey, this is something we can put and governments put money behind. Well, Sam, as uh, Dr. Bernstein has quoted in one of these pieces, the salvation comes cheap, he says, because prevention is much cheaper than the cures, as Beth was making the point there. So your response? Yeah, I'm really happy to see this paper take that stance, because I think it's really important that we reframe the conversation uh, about cost, about how much policies are going to save in the long term, because the disaster money will come when the disaster is hit. But being able to anticipate that is going to save us not just a lot of money, but a lot of lives. And I think it's a bit harder for people to to realize the, the realness of that impact when it's something that could happen in the future. But I think uh, as we've seen more and more of these catastrophic events, uh, climate and virus alike, uh, I think people are getting more on board with the idea that we know what we need to do to prevent these things in the future. Well, equity is a regular part of the conversation between all of us. And I think some people might have been surprised to learn that equity was at the heart of a decision that Mayor Wu made, which was to make three bus lines free. And this is very much connected to, as she puts it, climate justice. So starting in March, the city of Boston is launching a two-year fare-free program on MBTA bus routes 23, 28, and 29. Here's Mayor Michelle Wu announcing it. It is the single fastest way that we can achieve our goals when it comes to all of what we're talking about in the city of Boston, from equity and economic mobility to our climate justice goals, to our public health goals of reducing asthma and reducing exposure to pollution in our neighborhoods, easing traffic and congestion. We know that bus service is the best place to start. Sam, react. Well, first of all, I want to say I'm so happy to 
to have Mayor Wu as our mayor. I think we have uh, a truly visionary leader uh, in charge of Boston who's going to be setting an example for many other cities around uh, the nation and the planet. I think that making these buses in low-income communities fare-free is a really good start. Uh, the climate crisis and racial justice crisis and white supremacy are really intimately intertwined. And our fight for a clean and healthy environment must center these communities who are often uh, bearing the worst of the climate change and environmental degradation. You know, we've seen Mayor Wu talk about potentially even making the entire uh, MBTA and bus system free in Boston. And I think that would be a really strong move to get people to use public transportation more, which is vital to us recreating our city in a more sustainable way. Beth. Yeah, I think it's a great first step. I mean, it really is. I mean, is it going to solve the problem? No. I mean, a lot. I mean, quite honestly, a lot of these people are going to have to pay a fare anyway when they transfer. Um, you know, to get most people just don't take the bus. They get take the bus to the train usually or to another route. Um, but it is a step in in the right direction and and allowing transport to become free, particularly in places that are the poorest and 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 potentially hit hardest by climate change it, it is really important. I, I um, the thing that's going to really matter is if it, it can scale in some way. And that's going to be an expensive scaling to do. Though some cities are doing it now, we should say. This is not so far-fetched that in other right. parts of the country, they're not offering um, the whole system, their version of the MBTA free. And what, what happens then is that, you know, all boats rise because everybody well, why should I drive? I can just hop. Here's the bus right here. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I know of like two cities that have done it and have been relatively small. I just, I'm hopeful it would be fantastic if Boston could find the financing to make that happen. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And right. we should say this is federal funding, uh, some of the COVID money, but she has a plan, she says, after that, that funding runs out to do something different to support it and to go broader, as you've said. Dr. Bernstein. Kelly, there's an interesting backstory to this plan in my mind, which is years ago, um, we knew that these were among the bus lines that the city was choosing to switch off the dirtiest fuels onto cleaner fuels. And the environmental injustice around that was, in my mind, so um, obvious, but it, you know, it was reality that the city had chosen to leave the dirtiest buses in the communities that already were subject to the most air pollution. So in some ways, um, increasing access to buses, they're at least in this case, fueled with cleaner fuels is a great step. And, and I think that we need to really look at this in a, in, a, in, a, in a systematic way, because the thing we don't ask is what are the benefits we get? So we're very easy to look at the cost. How much is it gonna cost to do this program? But we don't we don't do as good a job using saying what are the benefits. Well, it turns out that Massachusetts has you know universal access to healthcare, or, or as near it as any state in the country. So what are the benefits in health costs? What are the benefits in terms of people's productivity at work? Because we know, for instance, that people who take public transit are much more productive because they're walking more, uh, or can be more productive. Um, what are the benefits to children's access to healthcare? So. You know, children in these communities often get care at Boston hospitals, including places like BMC. I know for a fact that getting access, uh, it can be impaired by transportation barriers. Often, as Beth alluded to, families have to take many buses. They can take a long time. 
I, I just want to make sure that we, we, we understand the full scope of the upside of this activity. And, and we, we know that before people will inevitably say, well, it costs so much money. Hmm. Um, and I think these are the kinds of debates where we often wind up making decisions that are not in our own best self-interest because we fail to consider the upsides of what we're doing adequately. Well, Michelle Wu was uh, also pushing for changing, converting those buses to electronic power. And that hasn't happened yet, but she's said it, that that was something she was looking at. And we should note that Massachusetts is now going to provide $13 million for 300 EV charging stations. Just so people had a sense of why the focus is on transportation often when we have these discussions, 40% of the greenhouse gases emitted in Massachusetts come from the transportation sector. Now, that's from the Massachusetts Energy and Environmental Affairs Secretary, Kathleen Theorides. You can't say more. This is a huge step, I think. Uh, if you're going to have 300 charging stations, I know that's not, you know, across the state, that probably could be double that. But that's a big investment, it says to me, Beth. Yeah, it's great. I mean, you know, it's, it's going to take time for, for the, the, the fleet to switch over. Um, but it's a real, it's great. You know, I, I actually have a, a, a car now that charges and it's, I'm constantly looking for those charging stations. So I'll keep looking. All right, Sam, what about these 13 million in grants? Yeah, I mean, I think it's great. I think it's another very important first step. But I think we also have to note that a lot of this electricity is still coming from fossil fuels. And mm -hmm. I know we're moving off that as well, but it's important to move very quickly to renewable sources for our energy. And as well, electric vehicles are not that cheap. They're uh, inaccessible to a lot of families. A lot of families can only buy 10-year-old used vehicles, and there aren't too many EVs uh, like that. So I think we also need to be making electric vehicles more accessible. And we've actually put forward a bill with uh, Rep. Dave Rogers that would give people a, a rather large rebate for trading in uh, a gas-using car for a hybrid or electric vehicle. And we're hopeful that that'll pass and help make it uh, more accessible to the working class. So, Sam, when you say we, you mean Better Future Project has put forth the bill? Yes. Sorry, yes. I mean okay. uh, 350 Mass and Better Future Project. Okay, very good. Dr. Bernstein. So EVs are inevitable. And the question we have to figure out is how to do it in the most equitable way. The, you know, the, the move to put in more charging stations is great. I tend to think that um, we need to really think about the equity piece of it first, because again, you know, as to Sam's point, the people who, who may benefit most from not having the fuel, but gas stations may be not able to afford. Um, you know, EVs and or access charging stations in certain parts of the city. But I come back to your point, Kelly, about, about public transit. You remember Boston has like the worst traffic in the country. Mm -hmm. And so our, our equitable solution really, I think, should first focus on, you know, public transit. And I think your point about electrification of buses is huge. Um, we absolutely need to prioritize, you know, cheap, affordable, um, accessible and and rapid forms of public transit above all else because if we just put you know EVs on the road we're still going to have a morass of traffic and that's going to be bad for everybody uh, so I think in this mix I would I would I would strongly encourage looking hard at you know the balance of of incentivizing folks to have cars in cities versus you know relying on you know other forms of, of transit to the extent we can there were two pieces of 
the way for the state to get to clean energy. And both of them have been undermined for various reasons. We counted on a bill to be passed in Maine, didn't happen. And we're just now in a state where it does not seem by those who are expert in this, and I turn to you all to talk about it, that we can proceed to to get where Governor Baker certainly had promised and others to where we need to be by 2050. What's your take on this and how bad is it? And can we sort of renege and pick up the pieces somehow? I'll start with you, Sam. Thanks, Callie. You know, so this 50% reduction by 2030, it's not some pie in the sky goal. It is necessary to us having a livable environment. And it's also legally binding since the pass of the Next Generation's Climate Roadmap Act uh, last year. So the abandonment of TCI and the hydropower initiative make the other measures that we still have on the table all the more important. Roughly 40% of Massachusetts emissions are produced by buildings. So retrofits have been pointed to by activists, by even Charlie Baker, as a logical step to combating our emissions. And uh, we actually have another bill, uh, the Building Justice with Jobs Act, that the Mass Renews Alliance Coalition, which is a coalition of 80 uh, plus organizations across Massachusetts that are unions, that are youth organizations, not just climate orgs. And uh, this bill would retrofit 1 million homes over the next 10 years while prioritizing environmental justice communities. And we think that this is uh, super necessary to uh, be able to reach our legally binding goals. And yes, it will cost a lot of money, but this is money that we will save by being able to have a livable future. Dr. Bernstein. Well, we, we were involved in um, the TCI. Uh, that's the Transportation Climate Initiative, I should say. Go ahead. Yes, thank mm-hmm. you. And, and, and to give a little more context, this was the idea that we were going to reduce the carbon emissions from transportation between roughly Boston and D.C., and we needed the states in those regions to participate to make it work. And it turns out that a lot of states didn't want to do it. And we learned, I think, a couple of important lessons. So while TCI isn't alive, the things we've learned, I think, are actually going to inform even potentially better policy. We learned that there are a lot of lives at stake. Um, our analysis of the health effects of transportation show that particularly in, in, in urban areas, transportation is the leading source of air pollution that leads to people getting sick and dying. We learned that there's a huge environmental justice component. And we continue to engage with communities that are affected by the transportation corridor, the major highways in the region. And we also learned that there are equity issues from urban to rural. And, you know, we haven't really addressed the concerns of electrification of of vehicles uh, to more rural communities in New England. And we need to do that in order to make good policy. Uh, So I'm, I'm actually looking at the silver lining around what we can do moving forward to make a yet better policy the hydropower you know piece is is another good example of recognizing that we're not going to shove environmental progress down people's throats right so it reminds me of the conversations decades ago about doing climate change for the sake of saving ice glaciers or the whales and i'm all for having glaciers around and i certainly am a proponent of, of whale conservation but a lot of folks have more pressing concerns and so we need to remember that whether it's you know a, a power corridor from Canada to Massachusetts, whether it's electrification of vehicles, or or any other thing that in the grander scheme is an important activity, we have to bring these things down to size. We have to make them personally relevant, and and often that comes through a health lens and and economic lens. 
And, and I think these are really important lessons that we need to keep in mind as we, we, we think about the next steps and how to achieve our goals. Beth. Yeah, there is there is a silver lining, I, I guess. I mean, I think we could still work really hard on programs that TCI would have supported, like improving public transportation, rebates for electrical vehicles, building more charging stations. I, I don't feel convinced that we're going to meet the goal without a really far more robust transportation effort. And TCI seemed to do that. For, for the hydropower issue, you know, it's so funny. When I was a climate reporter at the Globe years ago, um, the idea that hydropower would come down from Canada and be, you know, supplying the New England area and beyond with, with power it was really controversial from a climate perspective. That you know they were going to drown these forests and there's going to be lots of carbon emissions from that. And and we've we've evolved from that from that standpoint. And I think that's that's a good thing that we now see this as a potential solution to more dirty fossil fuels. But the one thing that I worry about is having, you know, these transmission lines and these corridors, it was rejected in New Hampshire, now it's rejected in Maine, who knows what the lawsuit, what what will happen, is that you have to see the relevant benefits individually to something like this. And I think that's, you can make that happen if the project is going to wind up supplying power to you, or you see that in real time, in real time, or helping your kids, but you kind of lose it when it's sort of a pass through, what looks like a pass through. Well, it seems to me that the failures at this moment of of both of these initiatives means there's more attention actually paid to it because the date by which, as Sam made clear, things had to happen and change does not move. So if anything, maybe another silver lining is more attention paid now to how do we get there Uh, because what was assumed would work is not going to. And I guess we'll have to leave it right there for this conversation anyway. I look forward to talking with you all again soon. But thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much. It was fantastic. Thanks so much for having me, Kelly. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Dr. Aaron Bernstein is Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital, and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Beth Daly is the editor and general manager at The Conversation U.S. And Sam Payne is the strategic communications manager at The Better Future Project. Coming up, grateful for COVID vaccines? You should be thanking a creature that has nine eyes and blue blood. Nope, it's not a monster. It's a horseshoe crab. Their special blood has created a multi-million dollar industry in pharmaceuticals. And they're to thank in part for the development of the COVID vaccine. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 